Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Penny Sarche. And I'm Rowan Hooper. Welcome to the show. On the pod this week, we have reporter Alex Wilkins, and from the US, we have Leah Crane and Chelsea White. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi. This week, we hear about an interesting development in the creation of artificial life and also about new ideas for making a solar sail. So, that's a way to propel spacecraft using the wind of photons from the sun. As well as that, we've got an incredible report from our reporter Alice Klein in Australia about how gene therapy has been saving children's lives. Uh, we're also going to hear about how a man killed in the volcano that destroyed Pompeii in 79 AD has had his genome sequenced. <laughs> and we've got a fascinating discussion on why chronic pain, uh, and that affects one in five people, why that's more like a neurological disorder than just a, a physical problem. All that, and we've also got an amazing free giveaway. Mm-hmm. But to hear about that, you'll have to wait until the middle of the show. Right, so we're going to start with, um, you know, just the small casual issue of the creation of artificial life. So, Alex, <laughs> you've been covering this. Yeah, well, we're, we're not quite there yet. It's, it's about building a synthetic cell from the bottom up. There's been some big news this week. A group have made an artificial cell membrane that contain active cell division machinery. Wow. Okay. So this is big, isn't it? Because the evolution of the cell membrane, like that is one of the the key moments and people call it one of the key transitions in life, in evolutionary history that, you know, early on in the, in the evolution of life itself. Yeah. So, so the thing that people are really interested in is learning how membranes work and how cells divide. And if we can make synthetic ones, synthetic cells, we could make them with unique properties that you don't find anywhere in nature. Yeah, and we can program them to do exactly what we want. Okay, so what's the story, though? So there's a group at the Leibniz Institute for Interactive Materials. They're based in Germany, and they've made a fully synthetic cell membrane, and then they've added in a part of the divisome from the bacteria E. coli. The divisome is probably not that familiar to people who aren't cell biologists, but (laughs) it's a group of proteins that are responsible for 
twisting and contorting the cell's membrane into shapes that are basically ready for division. It's one of the last natural cell processes that we haven't shown to work in a synthetic membrane yet. Yeah. And so there's this massive goal of trying to sort of incorporate it. Yeah, I had never heard of the divisome, but there's ohms for everything, aren't there? So even an yeah. ohm for like the proteins in a cell membrane. Um, okay, so they've got these proteins. So those proteins are kind of natural in inverted commas, and they've put those into an artificial membrane. Yeah, exactly. And then they've shown that it can transform the membrane into the correct shapes for division. So that, that sounds quite carefully worded, transformed the membrane into the correct shapes for division. Did it actually divide? Not yet. <laughs> okay, but, but what is really cool is that they've fused like the living parts of the cell membrane, if you can call them living, uh, these bits of machinery, and fused that with a synthetic membrane and the thing works together. So they're basically they're happy to be incorporated together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that is amazing. And I think, mm. obviously, they do need to go further and get the thing to replicate. But to be able to integrate part of a, a key part of the living cell with a synthetic bit, I think that says something pretty profound about, well, the meaning of life, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the, the meaning of what life is, certainly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. to, be, to be sure, they haven't found that magic link between living replicating cells and synthetic non-replicating cells. There's still a bit of mystery in there. But the more that we understand about how the two sort of fit together and how they can combine, then the closer we get to that holy grail of making something living from something not living. And how does this work compare with that of other groups? Um, particularly, um, you know, one of the most famous is Craig Venter and the work that he's doing with synthetic life and trying to make synthetic cells. Yeah, sure. So there's quite a few groups working on this problem from a lot of different angles. And you can sort of broadly separate them into bottom-up and top-down approaches. Bottom-up methods, like this group at the Leibniz Institute, they sort of look to combine from scratch the various elements of synthetic cells into a working cell and so, sort of Frankenstein-like botching them together. Whereas the top-down approach, like the Craig Venter group, they modify real existing cells, but they use gene editing. So they still function as life, but they have these artificial human-designed genomes. Thanks, Alex. And yeah, keep us up to date on this. I want to find out when that cell divides. <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you said there is still a little bit of mystery left in the whole of life itself. A few weeks ago, uh, back in episode 112 of the show, if you'd like to check it out, we heard from our reporter in Australia, Alice Klein, about a world-first gene therapy treatment. And now Alice has another breakthrough story all about babies with severe genetic conditions being, well, pretty much cured using new types of gene therapy. Yeah, it's another good news story uh, because not long ago at all, really, these babies wouldn't have made it past the age of one or two and now they're growing up just like other kids. So it's a really amazing piece of work, really. Um, and I spoke with Alice about this earlier. Hi, Alice. Now, you've become our good news from Gene Therapy reporter now and you've just been at the annual conference for the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy in Washington, D.C., but before you tell us what you found there, let's have a, a quick primer again on gene therapy. Yeah, well, I quite like the title of uh, Good News Reporter. I might <laughs> use that one. Yes, yeah, so we know that a whole range of medical conditions are caused by mutations in just single genes. Some of the better known examples include things like cystic fibrosis and sickle cell anemia. And then there are others that most of us have never heard of because they're very rare 
and they're so severe that they sadly usually result in death soon after birth. And for a long time, scientists have wondered, well, if these conditions are caused by just one defective gene, could you just replace that defective gene with a healthy copy to try to cure them? And that's the essence of gene therapy. And and what's funny is that when we spoke a few weeks ago, I was saying to you, you know, we've been hearing about this promise of gene therapy for so long, and now it feels like we're finally delivering. And now you here you are again with another another one. So it really is sort of coming along now, it seems. Yeah, it does seem like that. I mean, the, the field has had a lot of setbacks, which is understandable given how complicated it is to replace someone's genes, obviously. Right. But yeah, when I was at this conference, I did think, you know, it does seem like some of these gene therapies that we've been hearing about for a long time but haven't quite got there might be finally starting to deliver. Okay, so tell us about some of the things you found out. Yeah, so there was one gene therapy that looked really promising that's being developed by a team at UCLA for this very rare condition called leukocyte adhesion deficiency type 1, which is caused by a defective form of a gene called ITGB2. And children who are born with this faulty gene get these horrible, horrible skin infections that their immune systems can't clear And they normally die before the age of two, unless they can get a stem cell transplant, which is often tricky. So the UCLA team has developed a way to replace that faulty ITGB2 gene by first taking out their bone marrow cells and then inserting healthy copies of that gene into these cells using a virus to carry them in and then injecting those modified cells back into their blood. Wow, and they've actually done this, have they? Yeah, so it, it's been tested in nine babies and young children since 2019 as part of a, a small clinical trial, and they're all still alive. They're doing really well. They've stopped getting those chronic skin infections, which means they're out of hospital and off all their antibiotics. Some are now old enough to go to school, and they're leading normal lives, which is pretty amazing considering that they probably wouldn't even be here today if it wasn't yeah. this gene therapy. That is incredible. What else was presented at the conference? So there is another one with really impressive results for X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency, which is more commonly known as bubble boy disease, which Um, you know of as that condition where, you know, where children don't have functioning immune systems. And that means they have to live in these plastic chambers to protect them from germs because they could, even if they got a simple cold virus, they could die. And so a team from St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis has found that they can replace the defective IL-2RG gene that causes this condition by, like before, collecting the patient's stem cells, inserting healthy copies of the gene, and then injecting the cells back in. And they've tested it in 23 children since 2016, And they all now have fully functional immune systems or they're heading in that direction. They don't have to isolate it all anymore. Um, They can even get vaccinated and, yeah, just kind of get on with life. It's incredible. All right, I don't mean to be greedy, but is there any other miracle breakthroughs? (laughs) Yes. Well, the last one that I wanted to tell you about is for this really terrible condition called infantile GM1 gangliosidosis which progressively destroys nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord, 
which basically means the brain kind of wastes away and it, mm. it results in, in early childhood death. Yeah. So a, a company called Passage Bio in the US has started trying to treat this condition by injecting a virus that's carrying healthy copies of the GM1 gene into the cerebrospinal fluid at the back of the neck so that it can then circulate around the brain and spinal cord and deliver these new healthy genes into neurons. And they've only tried it in two children so far. One was 15 months and the other one was 31 months. But it's looking really promising one year on. So the younger child is now displaying normal brain growth and learning to walk and talk just like other kids of the same age. And the older one is also showing some improvements, not quite as significant, but they think that's probably because he had more severe disease to begin with. So it's it's possible that you need to give this therapy um, as early as possible. Right. Okay. But really promising. What about side effects? Because you know, as we said last time, gene therapies, the, the reason they fell out of favour in the first place was because of the awful side effects that they sometimes were causing. Yeah, so they really got a bad rap in the early 2000s and some gene therapy trials had to be halted um, suddenly because some patients started developing leukaemia. But apparently that was because they were using this particular mouse virus to deliver the new healthy genes into cells And yeah, so they think that mouse virus was the problem. So now most groups are actually using a virus based on HIV instead, but it's an inactivated form so that it can't cause HIV. It's it's basically just like a virus to deliver these genes into cells. And it does seem pretty safe so far. But of course, all the children are being monitored very closely just to check. And fortunately, none of these gene therapies have been found to cause any other serious side effects so far. So it's looking really hopeful for these children. We're going to take a break now to tell you about what is basically an amazing giveaway. Yeah, this is about free, unlimited access to all our news and in-depth articles in print, on the app and on newscientist.com. Whether it's sentient trees, space travel, or the mysteries of the human mind, the journalists at New Scientist find the answers to the biggest questions in the most fascinating topics. Yeah. Find out for yourself and get four weeks for free. If you go to newscientist.com four weeks free, uh, you'll find out all the details. That's the number four weeks free. Newscientist.com four weeks free. And we'll put the link in the show notes. And would you like to see us record the podcast live? We're going to be doing that on stage at the Blue Dot Festival on July the 23rd uh, with a whole range of special guests and you can join the audience. Go to discovertheblue.com to find out more and we'll be revealing more about the event in next week's show. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. To Pompeii now, and the amazing story that DNA has been sequenced from two of the people killed there in 79 AD. Chelsea, you've edited this story. Like, first of all, how did DNA survive the volcano? Yeah, really good question, right? It's surprising that it did at all because the hot ash that covered Pompeii when Vesuvius erupted was at least 250 degrees Celsius. So scientists thought it would have destroyed people's DNA. But because we know that cremated bodies have no DNA, so it was logical to assume that, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I never thought of that, but I guess it's obvious because the even the teeth are, dis- are destroyed in cremation. So I guess it's obvious there's no DNA there. Yeah, but, you know, it's always worth checking your assumptions. Um, That's what the scientists have done now. So they looked at DNA in the remains of two people discovered in a building called the Casa del Fabro, which translates to the House of the Craftsman. And this was a pair. It was a man in his 30s and a woman who was at least 50 years old. And they seemed to have been lying on a low couch in what might have been their dining room at the moment that they died. God, it's when you hear details like that. You know, it just makes it really moving, even though it's something happened a long time ago. And normally, you know, we think about Pompeii and we sort of go, yeah, yeah, that was the the place that got buried in ash. But when you hear those stories, yeah. Yeah, there's something about the fact that they had a couch that kind of got to me. I don't know that I pictured people in Pompeii. Hey, we have couches. Yeah, Yeah. we do it as well. And the photo photo of them as well, how they were found in the exact position, it it really, um, Mm. it's very relatable. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. So these scientists, they managed to get genetic material from both of these skeletons and they sequenced the DNA and then compared the man's genome with genomes from 1,030 ancient people who lived, you know, during the last 5,000 years or so. And then they also compared it to 471 present day people from Western Eurasia. And so the man from Pompeii had DNA comparable to that recovered from the skeletons of people who lived in Italy at the height of the Roman Empire. So the big question for me here is is not necessarily what they found in the DNA, but how on earth did they get DNA out of these specimens? I mean, basically, it's improvements in analytical techniques, right? This stuff is getting better all the time. These days, we can learn a whole lot from just a little bit of a sample. Yeah, I saw one of the researchers on this work saying there's always new discoveries to be made, even at world famous sites, which is kind of what we said last week about Stonehenge, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. These places still have lots of secrets to uncover. Yeah. And with the Pompeii guy, they found clues in the DNA that he had spinal tuberculosis, which causes severe pain and which might explain why he didn't flee when the eruption began, as lots of other Pompeians did. Mm. So, you know, that might be why he remained in town and that sealed his fate. Yeah, God. I mean, that's another detail, isn't it, that brings the story to life? Like, he was in pain, he didn't flee. But then when they said that he was in his 30s and the woman was at least in her 50s, then it made me wonder if it she was his mother and he was staying with her. So Yeah, I wonder. Oh, these stories. There's a little bit more from Pompeii, the Pompeii ashes anyway. Um, they've also extracted ancient proteins from the bones of some of the skeletons in a neighboring town, Herculaneum, which was covered in even hotter ash. The temperatures there reached 500 degrees Celsius. So the fact that proteins in human bone can survive temperatures that high is really interesting. And it also might be useful 
The researchers say that this could be used by forensic investigators, you know, to sort of estimate a fire's temperature based on any human remains. Thanks, Chelsea. We'll put a link to both these stories written by Colin Barris in our show notes. space now and NASA's innovative advanced concepts program, which sounds very exciting. What's the story, Leah? <laughs> so the innovative advanced concept program, which is also called NIAC, which is what I'm going to stick with for the rest <laughs> of this, um, tends to back these sort of speculative projects that have big potential for spaceflight if they work. So there's three phases. The third one is by far the hardest to get. And it's just given $2 million to some researchers who are developing a new type of solar sail. So solar sails are a really interesting type of spaceflight that work by reflecting sunlight. So every time a photon hits the sail, it bounces off and it pushes it just a little bit, just like wind in a, in a real sail, uh, sort of. <laughs> so one big limitation is that if you want to move in any direction other than directly away from the sun, you have to turn the entire sail. And there are some directions that aren't really possible, just like with a regular sailboat. So solar sails don't make for a super agile spacecraft. So is this the problem that the new project is going to work on? Yeah, so they're aiming to make solar sails that let you make a craft that can move in any direction without having all these big problems. And it's being developed by a team led by Amber Dubill at Johns Hopkins. And they're working on a sail that instead of being made of reflective material that just bounces the light back in the direction it came from, it's going to be diffractive material. So that can bounce light in all sorts of directions without having to be rotated. And it does this by having tiny ridges in the material, making up what's called a diffraction grating, which is something people might have heard of because a lot of schools do little diffraction grating experiments you can make rainbow holographic chocolate with it, things like that. But these are going to be sort of these special diffraction gratings where they can change the orientation of the ridges by applying an electric current to the sail. So it would be able to basically push that light and thus the sail in any direction. And it would look really cool and (laughs) rainbowy. And sort of since the ridges are moving, it would have this like rippling rainbow look which seems awesome. Amazing, <laughs> cool and psychedelic. Um, yeah. But is, is $2 million enough to do all that? What are they doing with that money? Yeah, so the $2 million is over two years and it's to work on developing the project. Hmm. So it's it's not enough to cover like a launch into space or no. anything like that. It's to sort of bridge the gap between concept and then this team going on to get bigger, better funding yeah. to make an actual thing. Yeah, Leia, I was wondering, so this one seems to be just about photons, but other solar sails that we've talked about before use particles like protons and electrons that also stream out of the sun, and those sails catch those. Is, is that different then? Is this a completely different kind of thing? No, it's it's not different. I, there's a, a lot of different types of solar sails. I would say most of them just use photons um, rather than using those charged particles in the solar wind, just because photons are sort of always coming out of the sun (laughs) yeah but what about when you get kind of far away from the sun and it's only like looks like a kind of bright star is it gonna just push you so slowly you know what how does it work yeah so basically these are really good for super distant missions 
they're not as great if you want to get someplace really nearby, like the moon, you wouldn't use a solar sail to get that. It would take forever. Um, But what it does is it slowly builds up speed so that by the time it's far enough away from the sun that it's not getting a lot of photons to accelerate it more, it's already going pretty fast. Just lastly, like, what is a solar sail made from? It's got to be really thin and light, but also reflective or refractive. What material do you use? Yeah, so they use usually like super thin polymer type films or things like the film on the back of a CD is probably pretty likely what this is going to be. That's usually aluminum, but this will probably be some fancy polymer. There's probably, you know, carbon fibers involved, I imagine. Um, (laughs) I didn't actually ask the researchers about this. Well, that's Um, what they're spending the $2 million on, right? They're going to figure that out. Right. That's yeah. part of this uh, This funding is for them to test a bunch of different materials and see what works the best. Okay, we're going to talk about pain now. Hayda Vorich is a physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and at Harvard Medical School. And his experience with treating pain and his feeling that medicine has basically failed to treat it in many cases, is behind his argument that rather than being a purely physical phenomenon, chronic pain in particular is more like a neurological disorder. Um, And his new book is called The Song of Our Scars, The Untold Story of Pain. And our feature editor, Anna Deming, spoke with him earlier. Hi, Hayda. Thanks for joining us. Now, we're going to talk about pain. In your book, The Song of Our Scars, you highlight just how much pain there is. I mean, you mentioned stats pointing towards one in five Americans suffering chronic pain and more being spent on musculoskeletal disorders like back and neck pain alone than heart disease and cancer combined. That all sounds like a lot of pain. Do you think we can hope that modern medicine will relieve us of some of all this pain? I think modern medicine is geared very well towards treating acute pain. And I think that we have done better in that regard. I mean, not too long ago, we didn't have anesthesia. We didn't have good ways of treating pain during childbirth. And now all that has changed. And yet when it comes to chronic pain, I think our treatments are nowhere close to where they need to be. And one of the primary errors that we've made is just simply assuming that what's going to work for acute pain is going to just automatically work for chronic pain as well without actually making sure that we test it appropriately and see if that holds true or not. And you also talk about the importance of being able to understand and communicate pain. I remember in a previous conversation, you described to me the physiological basis for empathy as a similarity in the brain activity for experiencing pain as when you observe it in others. That sounds quite an immediate sort of communication. So why do you think we struggle so much with the communication of pain? Why does it feel such an isolating experience? So so you're absolutely right that empathy is really kind of hardwired into our brain. I mean, I think when we commonly use this term, I think, you know, many might think of it as, you know, a bit of a soft term, but it is really something that's rooted in our biologies uh, quite deeply. Uh, When we see someone else in pain, the same parts of our brain that allow us to experience pain ourselves light up, showing just how shared this experience of pain is. You know, we've had this idea in um, both medicine and society that somehow pain is something that cannot be communicated 
through language. And yet, uh, one of the chief functions of pain is communication to others, uh, both to seek help, but also to find comfort through the kindness of others, which makes the fact that people in pain are treated so poorly even more surprising. I think what we've done in many advanced countries is that we've created systems that don't allow for empathy to be practiced. Empathy requires time between uh, spent between the patient and the physician. Uh, empathy requires that the decisions that we make are shaped not by how by the amount of things that we do to patients, by the quantity of what we uh, deploy, but really the quality of what we do and the outcomes that we achieve. So empathy is central and is going to be central to the treatment of pain. And we know from studies that patients who've had more empathetic experiences with their physicians have better outcomes uh, with regards to their pain. And as much as we need to rely on and we, are, we, depower, we depend on individual clinicians uh, stepping up and changing uh, how they approach the person in pain, we also need a system in which that is allowed. And I think not only will that hurt, you know, help uh, people in pain, but I also think that it will change uh, or overcome some of the inequities that we see when, when it comes to the management of pain. Because one of the things that pain is very sensitive to, or the treatment or recognition of pain is very sensitive to, is some of our prejudices and biases because of how subjective pain is. It's more than just a physiological thing, it's an emotional state. Absolutely. And in, in fact, the, the, the longer pain stays in our bodies, the, the, as pain turns from more acute pain into more chronic pain, it does take on more of the contours of an emotion and of a traumatic memory than of a purely physical sensation. What sort of treatments do you see on the horizon that might be quite promising as a new way of treating chronic pain? So what, what, what I advocate for in the book is really how the treatment of pain was supposed to be carried out based on the vision of you know, the person who is considered the, or the founder of pain medicine, which is John Bonica. And John Bonica really believed in the concept of multidisciplinary or an interdisciplinary approach to pain in which it's not that when you go, when a person in pain goes to the hospital, to the clinic, et cetera, that they're seen by a multitude of physicians all the training in different sort of aspects of medical care, such as, you know, maybe someone does a surgeon, maybe someone is a pain physician who specializes in providing medicines, but you also have exercise physical therapists. You have people who uh, are therapists and pain psychologists, and that the treatment should incorporate all these sort of different dimensions and not just focus on pills alone or procedures alone, which is really at least what's happened in the United States because of, again, how the health system is designed. And one of the things I really want to do in the book is destigmatize the receipt of mental health-based interventions that actually focus on changing how we perceive pain, changing how uh, we live our lives despite the pain, because these have been shown to be some of the most effective interventions for pain. And yet, because of the stigma that's associated with with accessing, say, a, a psychologist or pain psychologist for pain, because you know, I think people fear so much that their pain will be labeled as all in the head, if you may, and that their pain is going to be not taken seriously. 
I think that really is an avenue that, for at least in my broad uh, and sort of deep dive into the research, holds some of the most promise uh, for people in pain. Exercise is another example of a type of intervention that I don't think that we use enough of. So there's a vast array of uh, interventions that we already know work, uh, that we already know exist, and especially if they're provided in a fashion that is rooted in empathy and kindness, I do think that there's a lot of hope for the person in pain. The question is, are we going to develop the systems needed to be able to provide those those options at scale and uh, with uh, an eye on equitable access? That was Anna speaking with Hayder Vorich about his new book, The Song of Our Scars. That's it for this week. Thanks to our guests on the pod this week, Leah Crane, Chelsea White, Alex Wilkins, and thanks to you for listening. Do rate our show and subscribe and tell all, all of your friends and family to listen. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. Bye for now. Bye. 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 Goodbye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.